Part C. In this part of the test, you'll hear two different extracts. In each extract, you'll hear health professionals talking about aspects of their work. For questions 31 to 42, choose the answer A, B or C, which fits best according to what you hear. Complete your answers as you listen. Now look at extract 1. Extract 1, questions 31 to 36. You hear an interview with Dr Bob Dean, who's talking about a trial he conducted to assess different ways of treating the condition known as tennis elbow. You now have 90 seconds to read questions 31 to 36. The condition, commonly called tennis elbow, is a painful condition of the tendons which interferes with tasks involving gripping and manipulating objects. A recent trial led by Dr. Bob Dean has tried to see what type of therapy works best. Bob, is there a typical way that tennis elbow starts? It's a very common condition, but apart from tennis players themselves and people working in industries where they do certain manual tasks, it's surprisingly difficult for patients to pin down the actual start of the pain. And even with those high-risk activities, it's generally something that comes on over a period of time. In tennis, it used to be said it was down to the player's grip or the type of racket they were using, but nobody's really researched that thoroughly. There are plenty of guidelines out there, but they're not evidence-based. When somebody has pain, then modifying their tools, whether that's a tennis racket or something at work, may well help. But that doesn't necessarily mean there's a causal link. So what was your approach in the trial you conducted? Well, we divided our patients into three groups. One group followed a physiotherapy programme. Another was asked to do nothing to see if the condition just went away by itself. The wait-and-see group, we called them and people in the third group were given steroid injections. The physiotherapy we used was a specific elbow manipulation. 
The therapist applies manual force to the elbow joint, and at the same time, the patient actually performs the kind of task that causes the pain. The aim is to apply the force in a way that relieves that particular pain. But just as important is the physical activity the therapy calls for, because in most tennis elbow patients, their muscle systems quite debilitated. And I understand that complete rest wasn't seen as an option. Instead, you describe something called smart rest. Resting is an interesting thing. Immobilizing the arm in a sling is probably the worst thing anyone with tennis elbow can do. In fact, resting most muscular skeletal pain isn't good. What we advocate is something called smart rest, and what this means is being as lively, as dynamic as possible, but not hurting the elbow. An example is where patients avoid picking things up with their palm facing down, which is classic advice given to anyone with a condition. But patients do need the stimulus of movement to help rehabilitation, and so all our participants were given advice on how to manage their condition ergonomically, even the wait and see group. The difference was they didn't get any other form of treatment, whereas our other two groups did. So, what were the results? What we found was that steroid injections were more effective in the first six weeks, but not after that. The physiotherapy group also reported good results at six weeks, comparable to those for the injection group, and much better than those reported by the wait and see group. But then, after three months, the situation had changed. The physiotherapy group was now reporting better results than the injection group, and remarkably, so was the wait and see group. Indeed, they were catching up all round, so much so that after six months, physiotherapy is no more effective than doing nothing. At twelve months, and what's fascinating is that with a second study to show this, the recovery rate for people who do nothing was seventy to eighty percent. So, what does all this mean for patients? What advice would you give them on the strength of this trial? I'd say, in the first instance. Rest the elbow and see how it is in three months. If it hasn't resolved itself by then, they're probably one of those twenty to thirty percent who aren't going to get better. At that stage, I'd recommend they have some sensible physiotherapy. I don't think there's much evidence to support the use of steroid injections until a really good attempt's been made with the wait and see approach, backed up by physiotherapy. But it's still worth trying at that stage because the alternative could be some quite drastic measures, even possibly surgery. I see. Now it's quite common for people to think that if something's sore and swollen, they've got to take anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen. Are they right? Well, there have been various studies about this, and what they've found is that there's little evidence of inflammation in tennis elbow. So there's no reason to think that non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs are going to be very beneficial. So I suspect that just taking basic over-the-counter pain relief would be at least as successful as taking anti-inflammatory drugs in the case of tennis elbow. Now look at extract two. Extract two. Questions thirty-seven to forty-two. You hear a presentation in which a researcher called Dr. Sarah Jones is talking on the subject of weight loss interventions by GPs. You now have ninety seconds to read questions thirty-seven to forty-two.
My name's Dr. Sarah Jones. Today, I'm going to be talking about brief interventions for weight loss. What that basically means is helping patients to get started on the road to losing weight, and I'll be introducing you to some exciting new work on the subject. I've been interested in obesity for a long time, and it's an issue that matters. Two-thirds of adults in this country are overweight or obese, so I absolutely recognise that we need interventions which can be part of routine care. The reality is, however, that relatively few practitioners actually make such interventions, despite the fact that this is an established part of clinical guidelines in many parts of the world. Now, why is that? One reason, I think, is that they tend to have an attitude that goes, what can I really achieve in a brief intervention? Now, that's a reasonable concern. But when we did a review of weight management services led by health professionals, there were so few of them that it was difficult to know whether or not they made much difference. As a result, we decided to do our own trial, which we called Brief Interventions for Weight Loss. What we did was train GPs to make a very brief 30-second intervention with every patient coming into their routine clinics who had a BMI greater than 30. Basically a brief chat, saying, while you're here, have you thought about the benefits of losing some weight? The reason for doing this was to get patients who weren't really thinking about their weight to focus on it for a moment. If the doctor raises the issue in this way, we can capitalise on that heightened awareness by offering them support. By referring them to a program, we can create lasting motivation to lose weight. So, that was the theory. How did it work out? What I'm going to say next should provide huge reassurance to practitioners. Our first step was to conduct a survey of 500 likely candidates for the trial. Although weight remains a very delicate, personal issue in the public domain, only a tiny proportion of those surveyed thought it was inappropriate for their doctor to discuss weight loss on a professional basis. Given the need for urgent action on the issue, I think that's a pretty strong mandate. Anyway, as I said, this was a trial, so there were two groups of patients. With patients in the first group, the doctor formally raised the issue of weight and offered a referral to a weight management program. For patients in the other group, which was the control group, the doctor simply said, it would be good for your health if you lost some weight. So what happened when this weight loss intervention was trialled? Well, the answer is that three quarters of those offered referrals said, yes, doctor, I'd like to do that. That was an excellent start, but we're realists. And of course, they didn't actually all turn up. But nonetheless, a large number did. Of those who accepted the referral, more than half attended the program. Now, that's a fantastic result, exceeding our expectations, and indeed most of them completed it. So given that it was a completely unselected, totally opportunistic intervention, we were quite encouraged at the uptake for this program. But of course the crunch is, what happened to their weight? Well, at three months, people in both groups had lost weight. The control group, you remember they'd simply been advised to lose weight but were left to their own devices in terms of what they did about it, now, they'd lost 1.75 kilos on average. 
Meanwhile, the group attending a weight management program had lost significantly more, about three kilos. When we followed both groups up again at 12 months, patients in both remained below their baseline weight, but the intervention group had again done significantly better than those people left to manage their weight independently. This is an interesting trial because it allows us to model what the effect would be if GPs made this kind of brief intervention more widely, just once a year for each eligible patient. So how scalable are the results? By 2035, run countrywide, such an approach could reduce the prevalence of obesity by half. That's a dramatic result, showing that these brief interventions not only help individuals, but could also lead to huge gains for everyone in terms of better health and reduced healthcare costs alone. So, to sum up, I guess what I want to convey to you is that brief, opportunistic interventions from a doctor to encourage weight loss, when made in a supportive manner, are really to be encouraged. Thank you. That is the end of part C. You now have two minutes to check your answers. That is the end of the listening test.